0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Last time on This Working Life, we heard from Dr. Islet Fishback about how to kick our motivation into gear. Is it about how you define your goals, how you monitor progress? Is it about the juggling of goals? Is it about lack of social support? Hello. I'm Lisa Leong, and now in part two, we're diving deeper into the web of motivation.
2: We used to talk about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, but now we're very much aware of styles or orientations.
1: We'll be learning about engagement scales and what they can tell us.
2: What makes people engaged is so different across the populations. So all these different scales are looking at engagements in slightly different ways.
1: Plus, we get some fast hacks
0: that'll keep your motivation on track. We are so keen to show our new boss and our teammates how awesome we are. But that can be a trap. First though, let's meet Amanda.
2: Hi Lisa. I'm Dr. Amanda Ferguson. I'm a general psychologist and an organisational psychologist. And I'm speaking to you from Pittwater in Sydney, which is a beautiful body of water surrounded by lush vegetation and full of bird life, lorikeets, corellas, cockatoos.
1: So, Amanda, what is at the heart of motivation? What makes us do what we have to do?
2: Well, motivation is very much about ourselves as our personality and our values, our belief systems. We used to talk about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, but now we're very much aware of styles or orientations.
1: And Amanda, extrinsic, intrinsic motivation, can you explain that for those who don't know what they are?
2: Yeah. So, extrinsic motivation is very much about external rewards, which are usually held by a superior person and they're usually of monetary value. So, it's like extra pay bonuses and meeting a target often is attached to gaining a bonus. Whereas intrinsic is very much an internal gain and it's something we achieve within ourselves like extra information but it's actually quite murky the the distinction between extrinsic and intrinsic because for instance you can feel that you're internally motivated intrinsically want that knowledge because it's going to give you an external uh, monetary gain eventually in the long term and that's extrinsic so yeah, well, there's a lot of research into both of these areas that is ongoing and delving into the complexity of it.
1: And why are you saying now that we're sort of moving away from this? Well, it's not so
2: much away from, but it's additional too that we're now looking very much at these orientation styles, the way we orient ourselves to goals. So it's a, a forward or towards the goal, which can be including an openness to learning, or in a, a defensiveness, like I want my goal, but I'm defensive about failure. I, I don't want to fail along the way. And that's limiting. And, you know, we've got people, and I'm sure I'm one of them in some areas of my life, that I move away from goals. I have, I have a fear of goals and I have an aversion to goals. And we can have an aversion in one area of our lives to a particular goal and a learning fabulous towards orientation in, to other goals and areas of our lives. So it's it's quite a complex area of motivation.
1: Lots of people, Amanda, would be saying, look, show me the money, Amanda. That's what talks to me. Why do you think there's a limitation there?
2: Well, it's actually been shown that extrinsic rewards can diminish our intrinsic rewards. In what way? Well, we can think that that's what's motivating me and that's why I'm good at performance because I'm actually enticed by the monetary value and actually I've got no internal capacity for this. It's only when I've got a carrot dangled in front of me that I can make these achievements. And then people who have perfectionistic kind of personalities then feel guilty for achieving because of the extrinsic reward potentially and and may feel that they don't have pride in their work because they were just egged on by perhaps a monetary reward.
1: And is this where the word hygiene factors comes in?
2: Hygiene is generally good health. And so good motivational health might find us catching ourselves just, as you said, show me the money. And is that really good for me that I'm only just working for the money and I'm not getting any personal internal satisfaction for what I do and not, I'm not feeling good about myself anymore. I think, I think I'm just doing it for the money and I'm not doing it for a for things that I feel proud of, that would be like making a difference, helping people. Um, And it's not really being good for me anymore. I'm not feeling great about myself now. I think in this context of motivation is very much about self-knowledge and being aware of ourselves. And that's hygiene, health, mental health, very much that, you know, if we've got a block that we're feeling, as I was just saying, oh, I'm only achieving because I'm motivated by money. And I don't have this internal drive. How can I challenge that? How can I check that out?
1: And depending on where we are in our careers, what stage, we'll be motivated by different things, right?
2: Oh, sure. And, you know, you can imagine someone who's working to feed a family is going to be financially motivated and understandably, but usually as we get older, we've got more intrinsic reason to want certain goals.
1: So it sounds like it's really about giving yourself the space to find out or discover your orientation. And once you've got that, then you can work on, well, that then is my motivator.
2: That's it, because this leads to job crafting. And job crafting was again on the rise before the pandemic and now is a mainstream phenomenon that we want more of because people are more motivated by crafting their own job, their way of working, their careers, So we've got career crafting as well, and this ownership and, again, the, the shift of power to the worker Uh, brings job crafting to the fore and organisations that are really on board with helping people to craft their work, um, craft their jobs into what motivates them, what engages them, which was my PhD area, then we're getting more productivity from the worker, we're getting a win for the organisation, the organisation is growing and a learning growing organisation and very much a non-hierarchical or networked organisation is more productive these days.
1: And Amanda, Extrapolating then, in order for us to figure out our orientation, are you saying that autonomy is then pretty important here? Autonomy is pretty
2: important for some people, not all people. You know, a lot of workers will want to be told what's the rules so I don't have to make them up. I don't have to think for myself my life's hard enough or I work better when I just know what I've got to, I'm have got. meant to be doing and if I've got to be in the office nine to five, just tell me and I'll do it um, and I prefer to do that than think about how many days I want to be in or out. So, again, to your point about hygiene health mental health personal health work health you know what's the right way of working organizational psychology actually all boils down to the individual and the job fit or the individual and the team or the individual and the organization individual and the industry that's what organizational psychology is interested in the relationship for that individual and its hygiene as you say and what's best for it in the job in the team so forth (music)
0: Hi, my name is Evelina Bereni and I'm an Inventiologist. Psychology tells us that we're more likely to commit to changes on dates that feel like new beginnings. So that's what we call the fresh start effect. And this is because fresh starts, they help us to overcome the sense that we've actually failed before, which is a big obstacle to goal initiation. It gives our brain the opportunity to see the fresh start as a bit of a reset. The bigger the goal like learning a language or getting into a new work routine the more it helps us to make that clean start and those dates that feel like new beginnings can be absolutely anything they can be the first of the month or so the first of february if you've already kind of fallen off the wagon for january it can be your birthday could be a wedding anniversary the first day of spring whatever so If you're in that position now, waiting until a date that feels like a new beginning can help you to get back on track. One of my favorite terms of this year, what the hell. It's the effect coined by researchers at Bloomsburg University and the University of Georgia. And the what the hell effect happens when you've set a very big goal. For example, like I have set, I don't eat gluten because I'm slightly gluten intolerant and my goal is to cut it out of my diet. And say that on day three of my I don't eat gluten rule, imagine that I find myself munching on what I thought was a gluten free cookie only to turn over the packaging and see that that deliciousness is actually full of wheat and I'd probably respond to that with what the hell and that usually results in us throwing in the towel and starting an unopened bag of pastries that are just sitting there in the pantry. So instead of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, is that we need to plan for them by introducing weekly emergency passes. So research shows that when we allow ourselves a set number of slip ups in pursuit of a very big goal, we're significantly more likely to stay on track with our goal. So set that big hairy goal, but also give yourself two emergency passes per week if you're starting a new role this year you might think that motivation is not going to be an issue for you and you're probably right in the first instance Um, because when you're starting a new role you've got these skyrocketing levels of motivation because we are so keen to show our new boss and our teammates how awesome we are but that can be a trap particularly in terms of sustaining that motivation i'll give you a scenario we are really excited about starting our new job. And so we start out by working 10 or 12 hour days because we just love it that much. With those hours comes a higher level of output potentially than you're traditionally producing in an eight hour day. So you've set an expectation, a benchmark for yourself that you then become hellbent on meeting. And if you're really unlucky, your leader will want to hold you to those standards indefinitely. But that's obviously not sustainable to be working 10 and 12-hour days for the rest of your time in that role. Before long, you're burnt out and your motivation drops. So this piece of advice that really resonated with me from Michael Watkins' book, The First 90 Days, is this. Start your new role in a way that you expect to continue. That means work practices, hours, approach to meetings, everything, start the way that you expect to continue many of us are going back to our existing job. So for this one I want to draw on some research from Professor Teresa Amabile and she's from the Harvard Business School whose research has shown that when we feel like we're making meaningful progress on a project or a task that's important to us we experience higher levels of motivation, job satisfaction and engagement. She calls this the progress principle. The problem is we often don't stop to reflect on what we're actually achieving. We're too busy. We don't have time. We're not leveraging the progress principle. Luckily, it's a very easy and quick thing to do when it's incorporated into something we call a shutdown ritual. All you need to do is write one simple sentence at the end of every workday, which is, today I made progress on, and you write down the thing that you made meaningful progress on. That could be writing a literature review on productivity, like me, building a relationship with your team, which is equally important. Those relationships are meaningful progress, too. Or it might be analyzing the performance data from a report. Whatever that thing is that you made meaningful progress on, incorporate that daily sentence into your shutdown ritual to increase your levels of motivation. The key here is to do it daily. <laughs>
1: Amanda, can you tell me about your research into employee engagement and your so-called controversial conference presentation that raised some eyebrows I here?
2: Oh. <laughs> well, it and you're meant to with a PhD, you're meant to be controversial, you're meant to find a gap in the literature. So, back in 2004, I was reading that employee engagement was this new buzz topic that had been driven by Gallup and all these agencies, these consultancies that were driving engagement through corporations and saying, you can't have a more engaged employee, you've got to have them as engaged as possible. And I'd come from the corporate world, and now I'm a clinician as a psychologist, and I thought, hang on, they're completely two different worlds. And yet the literature was saying, oh, no, it's all the same. Doesn't matter whether you're a doctor or a corporate; it's the same engagement's the same. And I said no. So I ran research project through one of our major public teaching hospitals in Sydney, and through a huge cohort of business workers, and I found statistically significant differences. First time, ever reported that I'm aware of in the world. 2006, I stood up at this conference and I said you know this is what my findings are and someone asked so is does engagement even exist because i said look it's a, it's a mishmash of things it's not even a single construct and i said no and the next morning the world expert <laughs> Arnold Bakker said, someone had the hide <laughs> yesterday to say, and that was me, of course. So, <laughs> yeah, and since then, of course, we measure engagement very differently in different contexts. And, you know, just to prepare for today's chat, I had a look at what's going on in the research, and it's still so, so thoroughly researched and all these PhDs, dissertations in engagement. I mean, it's it's racing forward still, and this is 20 years on.
1: So let's tease out the relationship between employee engagement and motivation then. What's the relationship, Amanda?
2: If someone's engaged, they're going to be motivated. And what makes people engaged is, as I was saying, so different across the populations. You know, doctors are engaged usually because they're making a difference. They're motivated to make a difference. That's what drives them. That's, you know, engagement's about loving and liking your work. So if you have this emotional engagement attachment, you're motivated for the emotional reasons that, oh, people tell me I've saved their lives, you know, and or, you know, a corporate worker is emotionally engaged because I feel proud of myself, I've I brought in all this business, I'm cognitively engaged, and the doctors are fascinated by their work. So we're motivated for, in, for all these different reasons in different ways because we're different personalities, different types of people with different belief systems, different values.
1: In your experience, how many factors would you generally use? Well, the Utrecht has 17 items and then a
2: shorter survey of nine items was developed for just student populations. And now they've recently standardised it to any population. So the factors in that scale are three, dedication, absorption and vigour. The factors in something like the voice project's scales, they used to have, I think, nine factors. Uh, I haven't looked at it recently. Gallup has just 12 items, and I can't remember how many factors are in that. So all these different scales are looking at engagements in slightly different ways.
1: Can we do the one with three so that we could see what specific questions uh, there are? Amanda, do you want to do it with me?
2: Sure. Sure. So I'm looking at dedication and which of these items really speaks to you? To me, my job's challenging. I'm proud of the work I do. I find the work I do full of meaning and purpose. I'm enthusiastic about my job. My job inspires me. That's five items within dedication. And then if you're looking at at absorption, we're looking at someone for whom they care that time flies when they're working. They're so absorbed. They're so lost in their work.
1: Is it a number that I give you, Amanda, or do I just give you a vibe? <laughs> <laughs> so scales are
2: usually put on a Likert scale, which is a, a sort of zero to, to five or seven. So you're usually ranking, you know, how important these items are to you. And then you get a sort of measure, you get a global score on on each of these factors.
1: Do you remember that Spinal Tap movie <laughs> where the... <laughs> goes up to eleven, that's how I feel. I'm like, dial it up to eleven, Amanda. <laughs> so then what happens? So let's say I'm highly engaged as a worker. What does that mean for my motivation and what you can expect from me?
2: Well if you were a corporate worker I'd say that's great and you're probably highly productive. If you were a medical worker I'd say, well are you too engaged? And that was one of the key findings. And the reasons I did my PhD was because I thought I knew, you know, we can burn out if we're too engaged. That's what leads to
1: burnout. Oh, Uh, something's (laughs) resonating here, Amanda.
2: (laughs) 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 Have you found yourself too engaged, Lisa?
1: (laughs) Potentially. So these factors I'm hearing then, it's not black and white. It's what you do with this information.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And... And and that's the risk factor for doctors and and nurses and other human service and animal service workers is that, yes, they they go in because they're so engaged. It matters so much that they care so much. And then they've really got a fine line and, and this is where your hygiene point is so important of managing optimum engagement to the point where they're holding back from burnout. They're not caring too much. Because doctors and vet surgeons have to administer necessary evils. You know, a dentist has to drill. That's a necessary evil. And that's part of learning how not to burn out in your job because you've got to actually hurt the patient to heal them. Whereas corporate workers, it's more
1: simple. And you can get compassion fatigue, as we know as well. Mm, yeah, and, Amanda, let's say I'm listening and I'm actually not feeling very motivated at all and I, if I did the engagement score, I would feel like it would be very low. What are the concrete steps that you would suggest that I take just to start myself to look at my own motivation and try and increase my engagement score?
2: First of all, I'd look at health and make sure that you you know, perhaps have some external validation from people who know you or even a GP that you seem well, basically, fundamentally. And if that's the case, then you're probably looking at change of some sort, whether it's, as I just referred to myself, changing from what I valued as a corporate career to no longer valuing. And change is a constant, of course, and people's careers, we're now looking as fluid careers rather than even career change that People are moving so fast, so frequently, and to embrace that mindset that you may be one of those people that it's, it's about movement and then it's about soul searching, about what do you care about? What does motivate you? If you can do that on your own, great. If you can't, seek help from a coach, from there may be someone in the organisation, there may be a friend, you may be, need an organisational psychologist.
1: And is there a specific area in our lives where we would discover what motivates us? Well, friends,
2: family, external, other people actually have better perception and awareness of us than self-perception. So if you were to talk to someone who knows you well, potentially a, a sort of peer, a friend, probably more so than a family member who might be have known you from way back and not see who you are now. What do you think motivates me? Well, you seem to love animals. I mean, you know, oh yeah, I do love animals. Okay. Well, do you need to be working with animals? Well, that's a thought. You know, but no, I wouldn't want to have the hard stuff with animals. Well, you also seem to love this. You seem to like that. So, what you love and like is what's going to be where you're going to be engaged and motivated.
1: I heard the suggestion that going back to childhood where you were engaged in something where nobody was watching and you were loving it could give you some insight. What's your reaction to that?
2: Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I was a natural counsellor. I was naturally fascinated in people. I would be counselling the kids, other kids at school, in the library at lunchtime. I'd be saying, meet me in the library and I'll, I'll tell you what to do. <laughs> and then, then I was told when I wanted to study psychology after school, oh, no, you know enough about that. Go and study law go and learn to think, go and be a lawyer, you know. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I forgot about psychology. And then, of course, you know, that's a natural thing. So, yes, childhood interests There's your cognition again, you know, what you're interested in. Childhood loves what you love. You know, there's so much information usually in that. It doesn't mean explicitly exactly if you love animals as a kid, you're going to work with animals, but there's a compassion probably there. There's probably some kind of service work there.
1: That's just gorgeous, Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) It's truly (laughs) so. Now let's flip it. Let's say I'm a leader, a manager. How might I motivate others in my team?
2: Oh, and this is very much to that job crafting and valuing of your employee, um, your worker, getting to know them. So we encourage them to know about, you know, your worker has a a how's your baby going? You know, is the teething over? You know, how's your cat, you know? And what do you want to be doing? You know, Are you still enjoying your work? Is it still engaging you? Well, actually I'd like to work in environmental. Well, we've got environmental in the other area of the organisation. Do you want to be part of that team? So helping them to craft their careers even by giving them the opportunities they seem to want that engages, motivates them because of an emotional reason or an intellectual reason. Some organisations want it, they're encouraging it because they want to be told by the employee where they want to be rather than have to always tease it out of them. So how do we encourage people to speak up, be assertive, manage their own careers more proactively when often, as you say, they don't know whether they're even engaged anymore or how they would be engaged or where, where to. So guidelines to help people, I think, are even more important these days. You know, resources are needed for how we do that.
1: Thank you so much, Amanda. That's a great pleasure. It's been so much fun. Thanks to my guests, organisational psychologists Dr Amanda Ferguson and Evelina Berenni from Inventium. This Working Life is produced by Zoe Ferguson on the lands of the Bidjigal people of the Darug Nation. Next time on This Working Life... The joy of saying no. It's almost limitless. I am a machine. I've got to perform. I've got to deliver. We only have so much time, energy and effort. I'm Lisa Leon, And until next time, work it, baby. I can't believe you made me say that, Zoe.
0: <laughs> You've been listening to an ABC podcast.